understanding it took decades for conservative leaders to achieve meaningful power at all levels of government. Today's left is bigger and better funded than conservatives were decades ago. And though Democrats did not win in 2004, this left-wing movement and the foundation of new institutions on which it rests seems poised to exert even more influence in coming campaigns. Why did they do it? It's tempting to ascribe the left's activism entirely to anger. Anger about the Clinton impeachment, anger about the 2000 Florida recount, anger about the war in Iraq, and in some cases, anger at the look on George W. Bush's face or the way he walked. And indeed, that was an important motivation for many people, but there was more to it than that. The anger directed at President Bush was concentrated mostly on what might be called the emotional wing of the movement, Move On, Franken, Moore, and their supporters on what might be called the professional wing, America Coming Together, the Center for American Progress, and other groups run by experienced democratic politicos, the dominant mood was desperation. As the 2004 presidential election approached, the professionals felt they had been the victims of a double whammy, not impeachment in Florida, but rather the 2002 congressional elections and the newly enacted McCain-Feingold campaign finance law. First, the congressional elections. A decade earlier, after the 1992 elections, Democrats controlled the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. The House had been theirs for 40 straight years. Even when the party famously lost both houses of Congress in 1994, Democrats still held the presidency. In 2000, they lost both the White House and Congress, but regained control of the Senate after just a few months when Senator James Jeffords left the Republican Party. It was not until 2002 when Democrats lost the Senate, along with the House, again, while remaining out of power in the White House, that party leaders had to face the bleak realization that they controlled nothing in Washington. I think it was clear, particularly by what I think was a disastrous strategy in 2002, that something needed to be done, Podesta explained to me one morning a few weeks before Election Day 2004. We're sitting there with no real power, a kind of weak voice in Congress, and the incapacity to put forward an alternative agenda. What needed to be done, as Podesta and others saw it, was to organize. Liberals had never organized on a grand scale in the past, Podesta told me, because they had never really needed to. After 2002, they did. Not long after the 2002 voting, several of the Democrats who would become leaders of the new movement, Ellen Malcolm of the powerful political action committee known as Emily's List, Steve Rosenthal, who had spent years with the AFL-CIO, and former top Clinton aide Harold Ickes, held a decidedly downbeat dinner meeting at a restaurant in Washington's DuPont Circle neighborhood to confront what seemed like an almost hopeless presidential campaign in 2004. We started talking about the need to figure out, first of all, how to beat the Bush juggernaut, which at the time nobody thought Democrats were going to be able to win, Malcolm told me later, we thought that Karl Rove had a strategy to beat us on the money so badly that they'd get the whole election over by summer. That prospect was daunting enough, but the liberals' job was made even more difficult by the other half of the double whammy, McCain-Feingold. The law, which Democrats had long supported, went into effect after the 2002 elections. It forbade unlimited soft money contributions to the political parties, just as a reform in the 1970s had outlawed unlimited contributions to politicians themselves. Under McCain-Feingold's hard money limits, in any election cycle, an individual donor could give a maximum of $2,000 to a particular candidate, $5,000 to a political action committee in the same period, and $25,000 to a party. That was it. 
The new law had a brutal effect on Democrats, who, contrary to their image as the party of the little guy, had come to rely heavily on big checks from supporters in Hollywood and other liberal enclaves. Republicans, on the other hand, despite their image as the party of plutocrats, had always received large numbers of small contributions that would not be affected by the new limits. In the months after McCain-Feingold took effect, the two parties' fortunes went in opposite directions. In February 2003, for example, as the presidential campaign began to dominate the political conversation, the Democratic National Committee took in $2.5 million from individuals, all in limited post-McCain-Feingold amounts. The Republican National Committee collected $9.5 million. The Democrats' two congressional campaign committees, House and Senate, took in a total of $1.4 million from individuals during that month. The Republicans' two committees collected a total of $9.4 million. Add everything up, and the Democrats took in $3.9 million in the month in which Republicans collected $18.9 million. McCain-Feingold was often described by its supporters as a measure to reduce the influence of big money in politics. It sounded nice, but the people who had given seven-figure checks to the Democratic Party were not going to stand by while their team was slaughtered by Republicans in the fundraising race. So they found other ways to give, settling on the nominally nonpartisan 527 groups, so named because of the subsection of the Internal Revenue Service Code that provided for them. Though 527s were nothing new, several had been in operation in the 2002 cycle, they became particularly important in the post-McCain-Feingold world because they were still allowed to accept unlimited contributions. Soon, the anti-Bush money came pouring in, and any notion that 527s were nonpartisan was buried under all that cash. Perhaps the key moment in the massive redirection of money from the Democratic Party to the 527s came on July 17, 2003, when a group of Democratic activists and consultants met with George Soros at his beach home in Southampton, New York. Angry at George W. Bush's foreign policy and determined to use his fortune to remove the president from office, Soros had commissioned two teams of political consultants to find the best ways he might get involved in the presidential race. Those consultants, in turn, brought along Malcolm and Rosenthal, who were then assembling America Coming Together. At the luxurious home known as El Mirador, the consultants introduced Soros to something called voter contact, a new way of targeting potential Democratic voters. They discussed which states would be most receptive to their efforts. And, I learned through interviews with participants in the meeting, they showed Soros portions of a top-secret Republican voter turnout plan authored by Karl Rove himself, which one consultant told me had been made unintentionally available to Democrats. Soros was fascinated. After seeing the entire presentation, Soros made a decision that changed the course of post-McCain-Feingold politics. First, he decided to give a lot of money. That day, he and a few friends pledged to contribute $23 million, a figure that would grow significantly over the next year. But perhaps more important, Soros greatly expanded the reach of the planned effort. Malcolm told me she and Rosenthal had initially planned to work in just a few key battleground states. Soros told them to go for it all. He pushed us into doing all the states, Malcolm told me, and he was right. Soros's relationship with America coming together suggested that the new campaign finance rules had actually increased the influence of big money in politics. By giving directly to independent groups rather than to the party itself, big-ticket donors could influence campaign strategy and tactics more directly than they ever did previously. 
The fact that Soros essentially shaped America Coming Together's plan, then gave the organization the money to execute it, is a telling example of how the new political world worked. Outside activists and money men, some of whom had previously operated on the edges of the democratic universe, became mainstream power figures. And the power was concentrated in very, very few hands. According to federal records compiled by the nonpartisan tracking group Political Moneyline, in the 2004 race, the largest part of the funding for pro-democratic 527s came from just five people. Soros gave $27,080,105. His good friend and partner in supporting the 527s, Progressive Insurance Chairman Peter Lewis, gave $23,997,220. Hollywood mogul Stephen Bing gave $13,952,682. And Herbert and Marion Sandler, friends of Soros and the founders of Golden West Financial Corporation, gave $13,007,959. Together, that came to $78,037,966 more than the $75 million in federal funds that John Kerry and George W. Bush each received to run their entire post-convention campaigns. And the grand total spent by Democratic supporting 527s in the drive to defeat Bush topped $230 million, nearly two and a half times the amount spent by Republican supporting 527s. Throughout the campaign, there would be reports that the 527s were, in essence, writing their own rules. Critics accused them of illegal coordination with the Kerry campaign, which was forbidden by McCain-Feingold, and indeed it appears some of that was going on. In the course of my reporting, I also discovered something equally important that went largely unreported. In